Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we're always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Always the same. Now, as all the messages that I do, they all hearken back to Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jesus Christ, if you haven't figured this out, is always the same. As the scripture says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means always the same. And yet, as Christians, we are clothed in Jesus, who is always the same. And guess who enters into our life? Jesus, who is always the same. So I'm using a title that is rather big here, and it's a statement about God. And yet, did you know that it also should be the statement about us as Christians? that we are always the same. I mean, could it be said, Eric Ludi, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, not in the same way that it is said about God, but it still should be said. You know, I saw Eric last week, I saw him today, and you know what? I have this hunch that a week from now, he's gonna be the same, because the God that he serves is not changing. He's not going up and down. A lot of us have this misnomer, misunderstanding, that those circumstances in life are a roller coaster, that we are supposed to ride that roller coaster. And we, are, we change with our circumstances. So there's certain days you'll catch us and we're in a good mood. We're feeling really good. There's other days when we're down in the dumps. And you could say, well, why is it that you're so inconsistent? Well, my life is inconsistent. Have you ever been on earth? Earth is full of inconsistencies. And yet God isn't. And so when God intervenes in a human life, What he does is he stabilizes that life, that though the environment or the circumstances around that life may change, we stay the same. And so there's two meanings to this title. The first one we need to explore is the God side of it, because we try and be the same always. Good luck. You know, you just can't do it. We are completely inconsistent, this thing known as humanity. We just are all over the place. But that's why we must know the God who is always the same. Last week, I gave a message called The Unspeakable Name. And so to start out this message, I need to hearken back to that name. That name in Christian history, it has all sorts of different ways of expressing it. For instance, some of you have heard the name Yahweh or Yahweh. Some of you have heard the name Yehovah or Jehovah. That's the same name. And some of you have heard the word Adonai or Lord, that's the euphemism or the creative way of saying the name of God and in an honoring fashion so that you wouldn't ever say it in its actual pronunciation for fear that you would be taking it lightly because it is so grand of a name. And so they came up with the name Adonai or Lord. And so in scripture, I think it's 6,800 times the name Yahweh is used and oftentimes it's translated Lord, all caps, in our Bibles. And so this is the name, the name of God, the proper name. My proper name is Eric. God's proper name is I am that I am. That's what he says. And so he has a short name, sort of like the name Jonathan could be shortened to John. Well, God is I am that I am, but he goes by I am. And so he is known as the great I am. And that is translated for us 
Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah, Adonai, uh, Lord. And then another way that the Jews would say it is the Hashem, or Hashem, the name. And so this is the name. Yahweh, the I am, the he was, he is, and always will be. This is what it means, though. And we talked about this last week. The always, the continuous, the never-ending, the perpetual, the same. Now, I'm giving that definition to help me along in this message, too. Because if you heard last week's message, I gave a different definition. It's the same definition. It's just I'm using different terminology to say it. Basically saying he's always the same. He was that way. He is that way today. And he will always be this way. He's, he's Yahweh. He's the I am. Except for we don't call him I am. We call him he is. And he is is Yahweh. And so that's what we talked about last week. If God is saying it, he says, Eye, which means I am. But if we are saying it, we don't say I am. We say you are or he is. And that's Yahweh. Okay? So the most elementary attribute of God. God is revealing himself to men. Now, we made some blunders here on this earth. God created us good. He created Adam and Eve, and he was very impressed with his creation. And then Adam and Eve received a law. Do not eat from that tree. The day in which you eat of that tree, you would surely die. So just stay away from that tree. Instead, Adam and Eve eat from the tree, and they die. And there is a disturbance in God's creation. There is a death that enters into God's creation. And as a result, the understanding of God is lost. The intimate understanding of God is lost. The nature of God is lost. And men turn away from God, from the light, And they begin to go a dark way. And as a result, there is a need on earth for a revelation of God to begin to come. Otherwise, men have no idea who God is. The amazing thing about this is God could just throw us in the trash. We have rebelled. We do not deserve his kindness. Instead, God, for some reason, desires to acquaint us, though we be fallen, though we be twisted, though we be wretched, to acquaint us with himself. It's an amazing thought. I've been thinking about it all week, that God has condescended to reveal himself to us. And so one of the things we're going to talk about in this message is how God revealed himself to us. And so I'm going to say, just like in school, when you're growing up, you have preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, junior high or middle school, and then you have high school, and then you keep going. Well, the same is true in the kingdom of heaven. The most basic preschool lesson of God, we're going to say, is understanding the name. Understanding who God is. Because if you don't understand that he is and that he always will be, then all the other things you learn of him are unstable. You must know that he does not change. So when you learn about your God, you can know that he will always be that way. So the most elementary attribute of God, we could say, is his I amness. The eternal sameness, his forever alwaysness, his unchanging everness. I liked that last one. I liked them all, actually, but his unchanging everness. He's always the same, and he doesn't change. The, ter- the terms that are typically used in theology are eternal and immutable. But those are too big for this morning. So we're going to use unchanging everness. He is ever and always the same and he cannot change. This is how we start. Did you know that this is the basis of faith? 
If I were to ask you, do any of you have faith in Jesus Christ? I bet there's quite a few in here that would nod your head and say, yeah, I do. Did you know that the basis of faith stems from this? This is preschool level soul work. If you want to believe in God, you better believe that he is. That he is who he is. And he cannot be anything other than who he is. You do not define who God is. God defines who God is. He just is. Isn't that a funny way of saying it? That's his way of saying it. He is. So his unchanging everness, his nature, this is what we'll describe it as. His nature needs to be revealed to us. And by, that's in the entire Bible in a nutshell. It is the revelation of God. It is known as the word of God. And then Jesus comes along and then John, the apostle, says, and Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He's like the body form of that revelation. You see, Jesus is the revelation of God. And so his unchanging everness is his nature. And it's a piece of his nature, because some of you could say, well, what about his righteousness? I go, you're right, that is a part of it. You say, well, what about his love? You're right, that's a part of it. But if you only know that he's love, but you don't know that he is a rock and that he will always be love, he might be love way back then in the beginning of the New Testament, but we're not exactly sure that he's love today. You see, faith must have something solid to believe in. And this is what makes all of God's nature solid. Whatever you will learn about God will always be true about God. So if it was revealed 6,000 years ago, guess what? It still is true today because God cannot change. He just is who he is. We are not as we ought to be, but he is as he ought to be. And he will always be that way. So this is the basis, the most basic building block of faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe, uh-oh, that he is. You see, Eric didn't invent that statement. That's God's statement on the matter. You see, if you're going to please God, you need to have something known as faith. But true faith, you see, the concept of, when it says, for he that comes to God must believe. Believe is the action of faith. Okay, it's actually the same Greek word. And so, he who faiths, he who believes that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is the key, the crux of coming to God. If you're going to have this thing called faith, then you must believe that he is. Isn't that a funny statement? And you could say, well, he is what? No, you need to know that he is. That means he cannot change. He is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is. You must believe that. And that's what's so amazing. We'll go into this a little deeper. That's Jesus' name has the he is in it. It's Yahweh plus saves. Yahweh saves. The one who is saves. Another way you could say Jesus' name, he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You could almost say it this way. He is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Jesus' name. He will rescue you. The two factors of faith. 
So we're going to take those two factors, the he is, you must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So let's break those into two factors. Factor number one, we'll call it the facts. He is. You know, you could know that God is and that he'll never change. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved. You could know that he is, that he exists, that he never will change, that he's always been the same way. But there's something else that must be added. So we'll call the first one the facts, and the second one is the promise. He is a rewarder. You see, he isn't just there with the same nature always, but the nature that he has is good. And the nature that he has desires to save you. You see, both those factors are extremely important. So I'm going to give you a few little illustrations here. The legs. Okay, imagine that you're just sort of stranded off to one side of the stage here, and you can't walk, and you have this dream of getting to the other side of the stage. And for whatever reason, I mean, we could come up with all sorts of different stories of what's on the other side of the stage, but you're stuck. You can't move. No one has ever informed you about the facts that you have two legs, and those legs are supposed to do something for you. So we'll explore this. First, the facts about the legs. So you're stuck, huh? Have you begun to realize that somehow you need to get from here over to there? Hmm. Do you see those two elongated fleshly tree limbs attached to your body just under your waist? Those two appendages are called legs. And they were designed by God for doing precisely what you were needing your body to do. They will help you get unstuck. Could you imagine never knowing about your legs? You just sort of flopped off to the side. And you really have this dream of getting to there, but you're stuck here. And someone says, uh, <clears throat> let me give you some facts. You have two legs. Those legs were designed by God to walk, to carry you. They will help you get unstuck. They are built to carry the weight of your upper torso and actually transport your body from here over to there. These are known as facts. Okay, the fact that you know about your legs doesn't actually get you walking. But unless you know that you have legs, you will never walk. So those who will come unto God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For those who will walk from here to there must know that they have legs and then they must do something else. The promise. You see, we're not just told that we have legs. We are also given a promise about those legs. This news just in. It turns out that your creator offers you a guarantee on his creation. He has declared that if you would merely rise up from your seated position and put your weight on your two legs, they will, in fact, be able to carry your body. Some practice may be necessary in order to fully master the art of walking from here to there, but the good news is they will work if you just rise up and walk on them. He who would walk from here to there must believe that he has legs. And that when he puts his confidence in those legs and rises up to walk upon them, though it be a little wobbly at first, they will support his upper torso and carry him from here to there. Oh, and by the way, legs are built for more than just walking. They are designed for a multitude of other very exciting activities, including but not limited to running, dancing, leaping, scaling, skipping, frolicking, and even prancing. How many of us have a Christianity that may accept the fact that God is, but have never understood the fact that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
We must know both and. Some of us have never even come to the point where we believe that he is. No, 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 he is. He is God. Don't you know who Jesus is? You must know that he is Jehovah. He is God Almighty. He's always been the same. He was the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the first and the last. The mouth. I'm stuck on the body for my illustrations today. The mouth. First, the facts about the mouth. You are hungry and thirsty, huh? Well, you have a mouth. Yes, it is that tooth-filled hole in the front of your face just beneath your nose. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's been there your entire life. Well, anyway, this mouth is designed by God to be the means through which you satisfy your hunger and thirst. Wouldn't it be depressing to think that you didn't know about your mouth? Of course, you'd be rather thin if you didn't know about your mouth. But you actually have something here. And in and through that mouth, there is the possibility of getting nutrient into your body. And so you must know that you have a mouth. This mouth is designed to masticate food. Sorry for the big word there. And supply a porthole of entry into your body for nutritious foods and life-giving liquids. Now we have a promise. So the fact that you know that you have a mouth, and you even know where it is, is a start. But you must know that you have a mouth and something else. You need the other factor. You need the promise. This news just in. It turns out that your creator offers a guarantee on his creation. He has declared that if you would merely place nutritious food and life-giving liquids into your mouth and swallow them, then you will live. You will get stronger, healthier, and livelier with every bite. If you use your mouth as it was designed, then your hunger and thirst will be satiated and you will be satisfied. You see, it's not just that you know you have a mouth. But you now need to follow through on a promise. You know that when you stick those nutritious foods in your mouth, you will have life. Looking a little deeper at the facts. So now we're going to deal with the he is portion of faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. So who is he? So you're supposed to believe that he is, but what if you don't know who he is? If you don't know who he is, you could believe all sorts of things. Oh, I believe that he is. And someone could say, tell me who he is then. They go, oh, he's just, uh, you know, he's a god. He has a long white beard. He sits on a throne, on a cloud. No, no, you don't know who he is. You see, how do we know who he is? You know that we actually have the privilege of knowing who he is? And some of you could say, well, how would we ever know who he is? He's God. I mean, he's the great mystery. The one hid in shadow and... Uh, question marks. No, he's actually revealed himself to us. And he has given us a revelation of himself that is known as the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God, so that we would know him. It's an amazing thought when you begin to think that God himself actually wants to be known, that he wants to be understood. So how did God reveal himself to us? Well, there's a whole story in the Bible. You know the history of Israel? It's God's revelation of himself to us. Most of us don't look at it that way. But God is actually systematically and strategically laying foundation stones saying, you need to understand this. Now I can reveal this to you. And we're like, oh. And then he says, now you're ready for this. Oh, and now it's the perfect time. It's called the fullness of time. Now you can understand this. And in comes Jesus. 
You see, all of the Old Testament is a preparation for us to understand and to see and to behold the nature of God. You know, God has always been the same. A lot of us think that when Jesus came, God upgraded his personality. It's just like he was sort of a rude, warmongering God that loved to destroy people in the Old Testament. And then God decided to get nice. You know, Jesus comes and God's like, you know what, I like this guy's style. You know, he's just a little softer, and I, I need to sort of change my way. So yeah, now I'm a God of love. All right, now I'm going to be a God of love, people, okay? Sorry about all that Old Testament stuff. Why don't you just cut it off and leave the Old Testament over here? Just carry around your New Testament. You could do it in a little pocket version. We have this concept that God changed, but God doesn't change. You know, if God has revealed his love in the New Testament, do you know that he was revealed his love in the Old Testament too? He has always been love. However, our understanding has been continually growing of the manifold wonder of who God is. So part of that is what we could call the history of the law. Most of us have a sort of a squeamish feel towards the law. When I even bring it up, it's like, we don't talk about that around here. We only talk about grace. You know that the law is not bad in and of itself? The thing that is bad about law is when you are under it. And when you must live perfect righteousness out to be justified by it. You see, you cannot be justified by the law. There's only one that can justify you, and that is the one who fulfilled the law, who is Jesus Christ. But the law itself, did you know that it is only a revelation of how God behaves? So this is how God behaves. That's what God did. He started like, you want to know how I behave? Here's the law. And unless you are perfect in relationship to it, you can have no part with me. So here it is. Here's my perfection right here. It's on display. It's known as the law. So the law in and of itself isn't bad, but what it does is it exposes our badness. It exposes that we are not like God. Why is God doing that? Is he just being rude to us? It's like, thanks a lot, God, for showing me how bad I am. And this would be God's response. The reason I'm showing you how bad you are is so that you would know you need me to save you. If you don't know how bad you are, you're going to go off the cliff and into hell without any intervention. But what needs to happen inside of every soul is we need to cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? I have something wrong inside of me known as sin. How do we even know about sin? From the law. That's actually what acquainted us with our need for our Savior. If you don't know you need to be saved, then you will never cry out to be saved. The law is what calls us to salvation. And so the history of the law, if you guys remember the story of Moses, and Moses was rescued uh, supernaturally on that uh, little, uh, what was that, little raft boat, I can't think of what it's called. What was it that they sent down the Nile? Basket. Sent down the basket down the Nile. He, Moses is drawn out uh, by the, by the uh, daughter of Pharaoh, and he grows up in the palace of a king and then realizes that he is a Jew and is like, you know what? I could rescue my people. And instead, God's like, no, 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 no. no I'm the rescuer. I do desire to use you, but you're not ready yet. You still think you're the rescuer. So Moses is taken to the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. And then God says, eh, I think you're ready. When God reveals himself as Jehovah, as Yahweh, as I am, is right at this exact point. Who did God give the law to? It was to Moses. But before he gave the law to Moses, what did he do? He gave an understanding of who he is. He gave the foundation, the most elementary building block. 
And he said, I am that I am. And that was at the burning bush at the end of those 40 years. And then Moses goes into Egypt and says, let my people go to Pharaoh. And you have 10 plagues. And then the Israelites are finally set free after the 10th plague. And they cross the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is swallowed up. And they end up in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And God himself, with his very finger, writes on tablets of stone and gives what is known as the law, the Ten Commandments. And so what we have is the beginnings of something. God is revealing himself as if to say, I am that I am. Oh, and by the way, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you. And he begins to layer on top of the I am that I am, the who he is. God was, is, and always will be. Exodus 3, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. I have a few drawings for you. I know you guys are going to be very impressed. Some of you just live for the day when I stick another graphic uh, design in my notes. This is a king, okay? More properly saying, this is going to be revealed as Jesus as we move forward. But it's a king with crown, with one crown, but it should be crowns upon his head. I'm just not very good at drawing one crown, let alone crowns. But these are arms on the side. See those gold things on the side? Those are arms, Okay, I know some of you are looking at my drawing, you know, squinting, trying to see it. And that's his torso. That's his body. Okay, he's, he's a little funny shaped, but it's sort of hard to know how to, how to draw this. Now, what we have is we have the building blocks of understanding what brings us truly to the head. What brings us to that place of intimacy. Most of us don't have intimacy with feet. We have intimacy with faces. That's why a kiss is a very intimate expression. Okay, God is bringing us into a place of intimacy, but to bring us into that place of intimacy, he needs to reveal himself to us. And in revealing himself to us, he's going to show us that we have no access unto intimacy. That is one of the things that he has to show us. Something is wrong inside of you. Okay, so the first building block that he lays is, he was and is and is to come. This is a foundational understanding for us to even get to a place of intimacy with our God. Because this is where faith comes from. There is no person in all of human history that has ever been saved through keeping the law of God and attempting to mimic God's righteousness. No one, anyone that has ever been saved has been saved because of something known as faith. And faith hinges from this. These are the building blocks of belief. God knows that the only way we will ever see God face to face is by faith. And so as a result, he's laying a foundation for us to see and to understand. First, you must know that he is. So he was and is and is to come. And under, underneath it, it says he is unchanging everness. The God of revelation. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how are you going to get faith? Well, you must hear. And where does hearing come from? Something known as the word of God. And so God desires us to believe, but first we must know that he is. Then we must know who he is. 
And so how do we know who he is? By the word of God. And so we must hear the word of God. And when we hear the word of God, we begin to be acquainted with who he is. So what I'm going to say is, as God is revealing himself, you know what he does to Moses? He says, write this down in a book. But before he asks Moses to write it down in a book, which we know is the Bible, by the way, you know that he writes it down? The first one to write is God. He's the one writing it. He's writing the Ten Commandments. He's sort of laying the foundation. I am that I am. Now let me start building something known as the Word of God for you. And so he's layering a concept of revelation. He says, this is the first layer of revelation. It's known as his law. And we're like, thanks a lot, God. That isn't really what we want to know. I want to know how much you love me and how much you, you know, care about me. Don't tell me how I'm wrong. He says, unless you know that you're wrong, I cannot save you. You see, his desire is to save us. But to be able to save us, he must show us that we need to be saved. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah, or I am, was I not known to them. God is actually saying there's an incremental revelation of who he is. And right now, Moses, I am showing you something that all your forefathers didn't understand. But we're going to lay a foundation and we're going to do this right. I am revealing myself to you by my proper name. I am. So here's our guy again. At the very bottom, you see he was and is and is to come. And then right above that, he is the word of God. He is the revelation. He reveals himself to us. What you see in the word of God is who he is. And when you know the word of God, you'll know that he doesn't change because he is and he was and he is to come. So when you read the word of God and you learn about God, you know that that is true and it will always be true. I don't know if you guys are as excited about that as I am. When you read the word of God, you know that he is the I am. And as a result, what you read in the word of God is true and it will always be true. It was true. It is true today and it will always be true in the future. You have something to build upon, and that is why it is called a rock. But that rock rests upon something. It rests upon his nature, which is that he is, he was, I'm sorry, he was, he is, that he is to come. The God who is holy. So when you get the word of God, he writes it on tablets of stone. One of the first things you'll begin to realize is that you're not very similar to this God. Uh, God, uh, I'm not like that. He goes, bingo, this is the way I am. You know what the word in scripture is for that? Holy. It means other than. God is other than we are. And we don't know that. We think he's like us. That's what a golden calf God is. It's like, hmm, what do I think God should be like? And so we fashion him into our image. We make God look like us and act like us. That's what Greek mythology is. It's a whole bunch of gods that act like men. Bratty, spoiled, proud, arrogant men. That's the gods of the Greeks. And yet God is unlike us. He is holy. And so as a result, the first thing that comes when you reveal the law to us as sinful people is we realize, whoa, I'm not like God. Or what's God saying? Uh, <clears throat> you're not like me. You know that if sin never entered into the world, the word holy would not have been needed? Because we would have been like God. However, since we became other than God, suddenly it's necessary to come up with a word like holy. Uh, you see, you're different than me. I'm holy, you're not. 
I am other than you. I am the way I'm supposed to be. Something's wrong with you. The correction doesn't need to come to God. It needs to come to us. So the God who is holy, he's unlike the darkness. Holy could mean holy separate from darkness. So when God created the heavens and the earth, it was good. And then something bad got into it. And so one of the ways that I've likened it to is God's walking through his, his nice house that he's created, and there's a big piece of trash there in the middle of the living room. Now, I don't know what you do with trash when you find it in your house, but you pick it up and you have a special spot for it known as the trash can. God, it says, created darkness. One of the ways that I look at that is out of his estate, he carved out a portion because he's over all. He carved out a portion known as darkness. He says, this is unlike me. So anything that is not like me goes in the trash can. And then in the end, when all is said and done, he'll take it out to the street corner. It's called the outer darkness. Takes it to the dump. So in other words, the lake of fire is not just the trash can. It's the outer trash can. It's a trash can way out there. And so right now, God is dealing with trash. And he's saying, hey, you want to know where you're at? You're not in my estate anymore. We're like, what, what are you saying, God? Yeah, you're in the trash can right now. Huh? Well, how did I get there? Well, that's what I'm trying to explain to you. See, I am that I am. I am the word of God. And this is my nature. And unless you bear my nature, you can't be with me in my estate. You are behaving as a piece of trash. And this is where my trash goes. And we're like, uh, gulp? And that trash will be taken out very soon, Eric. <gasps> you see, what God is doing is he's layering on. We can call it the bad news, but ironically, even the bad news is good news to us. Even the law is good news to our soul because it's converting us. It is showing us need. So don't complain about the law. I know it's uncomfortable. I know we don't like conviction, but conviction is a blessing because you could just stay in the trash can and think you're fine and go out with the trash into the lake of fire in the end. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's not too good, is it? That's worse news than hearing now. I say let's hear the bad news now of our state so that we understand the good news. And this is not my strategy. This is God's. This is how he revealed himself. He says, I am holy. In fact, he is holy, holy, holy. Just sort of rubbing it in. You see, you are not like me, you are not like me, you are not like me. Or I am not like you guys, I am not like you guys, I am really not like you guys. The Lord our God is holy. That means otherly, not as the dark, but light. Not as death, but life. Not as the lie, but truth. Not as the bad, but good, not as the flesh, but spirit, not as sin, but righteous, not as dishonest scales, but just and equitable, not as a wave of the sea tossed to and fro, but unchanging. You see, this is the, we're like the dark, we're like the death, we're like the lie, we're like the bad, the flesh, sin, dishonest, and we're like a wave of sea tossed to and fro. And he says, I'm not like that. You see, everything that you are, I'm, I'm different than that. I'm holy, you're not. So God is revealing to us something, and it's rather weighty. And by the way, in the New Testament, you know what he says? Uh, you need to be holy as I am holy. <gasps> and where did we learn what holiness was? Through the law. We learned his holiness. He is other than us. And then he commissions us and says, and by the way, you still have to be holy like me. How are you going to do that? So it's not as self-centered, but love. Not as lawlessness, but as the perfect fulfillment of the law. 
He's otherly, always and eternally otherly. Never for one moment is he not otherly, but rather he is trifold, holy, holy, holiness. Holy, separate from darkness and untouched by its stain. So this is how he's revealing himself to us. This is how he starts. You see, most of us as Christians today, we're like, hey, where's the love, buddy? Give me a little love. And God says, I am. You want to know how I give you my love I'm giving it to you right now. I'm letting you know that you're not like me. Well, it sure doesn't feel like love. I'm hurt by that. No, you're going to be rescued by that. You see, the law is what converts. The law is what awakens. If you were never given the law to your soul, you don't recognize that you need a Savior from the penalty of that law. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And yet most of us today go, don't tell me I'm a sinner. Just tell me I'm saved. That's all I want to know. And God says, no, you will not be saved unless you know that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. Because if you don't know that you're a sinner, you will not come to Jesus for your salvation. You will come up with a golden calf God who will just pat you on the back and say, I think you're fine. I really like you. In fact, I think I need you. We think that God needs us. But the great condescension of God is that he is willing to rescue us with his life, though we contribute nothing. Oh, here's my my guy again. So we have a foundation that we're building on. He was and he is and he is to come. That means everything above this is going to be unchanging. He will always be this way. And then God reveals that he's the word of God. You know that the word of God is eternal? It doesn't change. It never alters. You can't add anything to it or subtract from it. It is always the same. And then guess what? He is holy. It says he has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. You know that he will always be that way? For those of us that have the notion that when the New Testament came along, God sort of ditched his holiness. He's like, well, I can't remain holy. Otherwise, I'd never have relationship with you. So I'm going to sort of discard my holiness, and now I'm just going to be love. He is. That means when he reveals himself as holy, 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 he will always be holy, holy, holy. It's not an amazing thought that God didn't diminish in his holy, holy, holiness one bit by the cross. Not one bit. He is still exactly who he was before the cross. He is. It's a very key point. The God who is righteous. Now, when the law was given, what we had was a stipulation of perfect living. This is perfect thought. This is perfect behavior. This is perfect action. This is how you ought to be. First of all, we know that God is not like us. Whoa, that's him. And then what does God say? And you must behave this way too. And unless you behave this way, you will be cut off from me. (gasps) So I need to behave like this? He goes, yes, this is called righteousness. Did you know that the word righteous would not even be needed if we had not allowed darkness to enter this world? Why? Because we would have been holy like he is and we would have been perfectly righteous because the concept of unrighteousness wouldn't even been in existence. But since darkness and sin entered the world to expose sin for what it is, there needed to be a revelation of how God is other than us. So God gave the stipulation, he gave the standard, and he said, now... This is what is known as righteousness. And unless you are like this, you can have no part with me. Whoa, that's a pretty high standard. That's right. God is righteous. That means he is in perfect agreement with the law. Everything he has ever done can be measured by the same law, which is his nature, and he would be found just. That means cleared by the law, 
perfectly in agreement with the law. God is perfectly in agreement with the law. So the God who is righteous, he's the law giver. He's the one who gave the law in the first place. He's the law keeper. Isn't that an interesting thought that God keeps the law? Well, that's because that's his nature. He's not going to violate it. Some people have these notions that God is sort of the renegade. He gives us a law and then he can do whatever he wants. You know that you can know the nature of God by looking at the law? He abides by his own law. He doesn't tell us to do something and then do the opposite. As if he says, hey, you can't lie. And then he's like, but I can. This is sure fun being God. You cannot murder, but I can. You know that God is perfectly just in every single thing he does? Everything. He is in perfect agreement with his law. He is known in scripture as righteous. Isn't that an amazing thought? So he's the just and equitable judge. So righteousness, perfect in relation to the law. Have you ever tried to be righteous in your own? Just sort of decide one day, wake up and like, I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to just do everything the Bible tells me to do and I'm going to do it perfectly. A lot of people try and live that way, and I'm just going to break it to you as simply as I can. You cannot actually do that, which is the whole point of what God's trying to teach us here. He says, you have an impediment. You have a problem. First of all, you're not like me. Second, you can't do as you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be righteous. There's a command, and it has never changed. We must be holy as he is holy. We must be perfect as he is perfect. We must be righteous to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we're like, all right, God, I, I got your point. I'm going to try and do that for you. And he goes, and the next thing, you can't do it. We're like, well, where does that leave me then? I have no hope in this world. You raise the bar, you raise the standard. He says, I've exposed sin so that I can rescue you from the power and the penalty of it. You see, he has exposed a problem so that we would turn in faith to the one who is. Because there's more to the revelation of God than the fact that he is just the word of God, he is holy, and he is righteous. There is more to it. Remember how I said there's facts, and then there's a promise. If all you have is the facts, you could know about your legs, but never walk. You could know about your mouth and never eat. You could know about the righteousness and the holiness of God and never find salvation. Just knowing about it actually doesn't get you walking and eating. You need something else. He who would come unto God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. So, he's the I am that I am. He is the word of God. He's the perfect revelation of his nature. That's what scripture is and that's what Jesus is. He is holy, 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 and he is righteous. So we're learning about God. This is how God tutored Israel. And so we're being taught the same. Righteousness is as God is. This is just who he is. He's righteous. He is unblurred light, eternal life, always truthful, perfectly good, always just, wholly loving, without a perfect, with a perfect hatred for sin and a perfect love for that which is good. Holy, unchanging, unblemished, without spot in the perfect fulfillment of the law. Does that sound like us? No. You see, that's God, and he is perfectly righteous. Whatever we ought to be, he is. Whatever the commands of Scripture dictate, you must be this way, he is that way. You see, what he is commanding is for us to be as he is, which is righteous. He can't help but be righteous, and he always will be righteous. You see, he was righteous, he is righteous, and he will always be righteous. And he says, you must be righteous too. 
It's okay to gulp. I, I, I don't even know how to be that, God. He says, I know. But do you recognize that I am holy, you are not. I am righteous, you are not. Are you seeing something? See, the law is doing something to acquaint us with who he is and who we are not. It is exposing something. All right, here's our drawing again. So look at our our list as we're building it. He was and is and is to come. So whatever is above this in the list will always be that way. He will never alter from it. He was, he is, and he is to be that forever. He is the word of God. He is holy, and he will always be holy, and he is righteous. And then, bunk, we run into something there. What is that? Well, in the temple, it would be a veil. It would be a hindrance from the intimate presence of God. And we could call it a ceiling. There is no way up. There's only downward propulsion with the law. The law is a sentence. It is basically saying you're guilty, you're condemned. All it has to give us is fact. That's the only thing it can give us. The law seems a little unfeeling because it isn't offering us any mercy. All it's doing is saying, guilty. What? I I just pop out of my mother's womb. Guilty. Ah, How in the world do I get out of this state? You see, I want to get close to the head. And God says, get to the head. You must be perfect as I am perfect. You must be holy as I am perfect, as I am holy. And yet we can't get through this. There is a blockage. There is a hindrance. There is a veil that separates us. The law. The law is that which brings light to the otherness, the holiness of God, enunciating the perfect righteousness or the law-keeping nature of God's behavior. He is otherly. The law clarifies light from dark, life from death, truth from lie, good from bad, justice from injustice, selfishness from love, spirit from flesh, and righteousness from sin. It exposes the fact that God is otherly from us, and we are otherly from him. Okay, so have you guys sort of figured that one out yet? How do we know that which is good and that which is evil? Well, God's word is exposing that. He's saying, you need to know the difference between that which is of me and that which is of the devil. You must know that which is light from that which is dark. You must know that which is love from that which is selfish. The law is a schoolmaster. Listen to this scripture. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see, what do most of us do when we run into that, that separation or that veil, hit our head on that ceiling? We're like, I need to be holy. I need to be righteous. And so we do whatever we can to mimic the holiness and the righteousness of God. We esteem it. There's nothing wrong with that. We esteem his righteousness. We esteem his holiness. We're in awe when we see it. We tremble as it is declared in Scripture. And yet, we can't do it. We can't get through that veil. There is an impediment in us. That is because we aren't as he is. We are not holy. We are not righteous. There is some twisting within us. There is something wrong in us that hinders us. So what is the law doing? It is a schoolmaster. It's a tutor. And what is it teaching us? You need a savior. Oh, and lesson number two. You really need a savior. All right, we'll meet again tomorrow. All right, law, what do you have to say to me today? You really, really need a savior. What is the law going to be teaching us for the rest of our lives if we will listen? You can't, only he can. You see, you are not holy, he is. 
You don't have that righteousness in and of yourself. That's what Romans 7 is when Paul is saying, I esteem the law, but then I look inside myself and there's nothing here that I can fulfill it. There's nothing to perform it. Woe is me, Paul says. Who can save me from this body of death? And then his next line is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the law is a schoolmaster which brings us unto Christ that we might be justified, which is the term of being made right with the law, by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So no longer are you under the law as your tutor. Now you're under Jesus. You're under what's known as grace. The law exposes just consequence. So the law doesn't just expose the nature of God. Say, so he's holy. Look at his behavior. You know what it also exposes? His right behavior and his just behavior towards sin. And it says, if you do not behave as I behave, if you aren't holy as I am holy, if you're not righteous as I am righteous, then this is the consequence. <gasps> it's pretty dour. It's pretty dire. The law says, you sin, you die. It just doesn't have any softness to it. It just sort of says it bluntly. You sin, you die. It's called the law of sin and death. So God says, if you eat of that tree, the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. You eat, you die. The revelation, you see, remember how I said that God is revealing himself to us. And what he is revealing is so that we might believe, that we might turn in faith unto his work. The law is still true. You sin, you die. The law is not negated in that sense. It is still the revelation of God's behavior and his nature. However, what's the revelation? You've sinned, therefore you die. The law leads to the sentence sinner to the cross. So it converts the soul is the term in scripture. The law says you must be righteous. And what is the revelation? I can't do it. I am not like God. I am unholy and unrighteous. I am a sinner. Any of you that have spent any time in Christianity recognize that this is the baseline of turning unto Christ for salvation. Right here. What is the statement? I, I, I can't do this. I am not like God. I am unholy and unrighteous. I am a sinner. We see we are agreeing with the just sentence of the law. And what's the cry? What must I do to be saved? The cross reveals something known as grace. The cross says something. Remember how we said he must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The cross is where there is a promise given. The cross says believe and live. Remember the first one says if you eat, you die. You eat of that fruit, you'll die. If you sin, you die. Now God's saying, but if you believe, you live. Believe in what? And that's what we'll go into in just a second. The revelation is, my God has made a way for me to be saved. You're not just believing in some random thing, like a, a chair can float. You're believing that Jesus, God Almighty, took on skin, came to this earth, and he did the work for you to rescue you and to bring you righteousness and holiness that is not your own. So that you could be brought through that veil unto that head, Jesus Christ. The unchanging everness of God has been revealed. So here's our list. This is just a different. Remember that picture of the, the guy and we're sort of building? This is the same list. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. I am that I am. 
He is the Word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. His name is called the Word of God. He is holy. He has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. The Lord our God is holy. He is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. God is the same. He changes not. In him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The statement of law. God eternally was, is, and always will be holy and righteous. You are other than he is and have violated his righteous nature. Therefore, you are under the just sentence of death and your due punishment is eternal hellfire. Oh, oh, that's a pretty stiff statement there. But that's what the law has to say. But what does the law do? It's a schoolmaster. It says, look, this is fact. However, there is more to the nature of God. You see, God's nature that is and always will be includes something that you've been cut off from. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So what does Psalm say? The law of the Lord that we have just discussed, which is the perfect revelation of his nature, it is perfect. And what does it do? It converts the soul. When you are given the law, what it does is it it forces an acknowledgement within you that you need a savior. It converts you. So what is the statement of grace? But God is not merely holy and righteous. He is also love. Now for those of you who are like, what about the love? Love has to have a context. Love is an incredible attribute, a massive attribute of our God. And we have been, in a sense, cut off from receiving it in full benefit and full uh, experience because of our sin. But that doesn't mean the the love of God dissipated and went into nothingness. It's always been there. And God so loved the world that he gave. God loved us before Christ died. God's love is before the cross. God's love is what leads him to do the intervention and to rescue us. God is not merely holy and righteous. He is also love. And though we were justly deserving of condemnation at the expense of At the expense of his own person, he saw fit to humble himself and endure the terrible sufferings of a cross in order to bear the just sentence of death and the due punishment that was rightfully ours to bear. The God of love. Listen to this. The God who can't help but bring life. He was love, is love, and always will be love. So yes, God is holy. Yes, God is righteous. But God is love. And that love, what does it do? It crosses over that veil and enters into our territory, picks us up, and carries us through that veil. You see, God's love is like a heat-seeking missile. We are not holy, and we are not righteous, but he is. And so, because he loves us, and he always has, and always will, he has pursued us to rescue us. Love. That behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. God is love. Let me read it again, just with that statement, so you understand this is how God is. This is his nature. This is how he has revealed himself in Scripture. And guess what? He has always been this way. He is this way today, and he always will be this way. Remember, the foundation for faith is he is. He always will be. So anything that is revealed in the word of God is true. It's not just that he's holy. It's not just that he is righteous, even though those things are both true. But he is love. 
That behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. God is love. Amazing statement. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember that ceiling we were hitting? Because unless you are perfectly righteous, unless you are perfectly holy, you can't get into that inner core, that most holy place. You cannot access God. You can attempt to, but you cannot access. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The unchanging everness of God has been revealed. He was and is and is to come. He is the word of God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is love. He ever lives to bring us life, even at his own expense. God is love. So here's our our guy again. Now, what you'll see is that what I'm doing is I'm breaking up it into two pieces. I'm saying, these are the facts, the law. This is the way it is. However, There is something beyond this, and that is his nature is good and inclined towards your benefit. You see, when you say that God is righteous, it doesn't necessarily indicate that he's inclined towards your benefit. All it could say is, yeah, and you're cut off from him. The fact that God is, and he always has been, doesn't necessarily show that he's inclined towards your benefit. The fact that he's the word of God and he's revealing, I have to admit, is showing that he wants us to know something. But what if he wants us to know that we're condemned? He's holy. He's righteous. That doesn't necessarily show that we have any hope in this world. Those are the facts. You need to know that he is and he always will be. However, one of those key facts that is nice to layer on is that God is interested in your benefit. God is not consumed with self-interest. He is consumed with your benefit. That is the most astounding concept. That God loves us. That God is fixating us on rescuing us. So he is love. He ever lives to bring us life, even at his own expense. The cross. Look at this. Those are the five attributes I've shared so far. Jesus comes to the cross, and what does he reveal? He reveals the manifold nature of God. Everything that was revealed in the Old Testament is revealed at the cross. It's the enunciation of his I amness. It's the word of God fulfilled. Everything in the Old Testament is prophesied to this event. It's holiness exemplified. Everything, even the way he handled the cross is the exact opposite of the way any human would ever do it. It's righteousness fulfilled. Perfect justice satisfied. Punishment and wrath satiated. God is righteous. You know that he didn't violate his righteousness and he didn't violate his justice at the cross? He didn't skip over that. A lot of us have the notion, it's like, well, if he's God, he can do anything. Why doesn't he just wipe away all our sin instead of having to go to the cross himself? Because he is, and he is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. He can't violate that. The only way for justice to be satisfied is for it to be satisfied according to the law. And God is a law keeper. God kept the law. Perfect holiness. He is the lamb without blemish and without stain. And he comes perfectly to the cross and satisfies justice. He is. And he always will be. He didn't violate his nature for one moment in coming to the cross. And as most of us know, it was perfect love demonstrated there. 
That was what moved him to the cross, and that's what he showcases. He showcases the fact that he has our interests in mind. Law, that which sets forth God's eternal decree of what is perfect behavior, right action, and just consequence. Just consequence. More simply, that which reveals sin. It is the schoolmaster. So the law reveals sin. The law is the one that is going to take you to Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about grace. Grace is God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior and right action. All right, guys, here's the standard. This is how you have to live. And guess what? None of us have done it. All of us have fallen short of that glory. All of us have sinned. Every single one of us has failed. Not one of us has demonstrated perfect holiness. Not one of us has demonstrated perfect righteousness. If all we have is law, there is no hope. But there is hope. You see, God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior and right action is grace. And it is the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. Simply put, grace is that which rescues. Law is that which exposes sin. Grace is that which rescues you from sin. You see, God isn't just law. He's also grace. So though we are condemned by the law, he fulfills the law. And with perfect justice and righteousness, he has made a way. And if you believe on Jesus Christ that way, you will be saved and you will be deemed righteous with the law and you will be clothed in his holiness and his Holy Spirit will enter into you and make you holy as he is holy. So that which rescues from sins, very simply put, grace is Jesus. That's what grace is. It's the work of God on our behalf. It's a person. It's not just a concept. You know that Jesus is the law made flesh? He's the behavior of God, the perfect righteousness and holiness of God. But he's also the saving work of God made flesh. He's grace. And grace is the greater triumph. Grace, the law of believe and live, is higher than the law of sin and death. Just like the law of aerodynamics is higher than the law of gravity, the law of grace, believe and live, is higher than the law of sin and death. So though you have sin and though you deserve death, there is a higher law. And that is if you repent and turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus Christ, you will live. Law was not discarded in the offering of grace. It was fulfilled. Holiness was not discarded in the declaration of God's love. It was now made possible. How many Christians live with this concept that, oh, you don't need to worry about God's holiness and righteousness anymore. We're free from that. As if God altered in his nature. No, God still is holy and he still is righteous. Well, where did we get this notion? However, we are still incapable in and of our own strength. If I asked you, you know, so do you, have, do you have what you need in your own pockets? I don't. I have it in God's pocket. And I have access to God's pocket for holiness and righteousness. You see, it's not mine, it's his but when I am called to live in this life, did you know that I have access to something known as grace? It's God's ability to save. God's ability to enable me to live as I ought to live. I need to be righteous. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, it's called grace. And God's grace enables me to live a life that I otherwise couldn't live. 
so that I can be as he is. I can think thoughts that are like his thoughts. I can behave and act the way God would behave and act in that situation. Not because I have it, but because he has it. And he's made it available to me at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Righteousness was not discarded now that Jesus has expressed his mercies and kindnesses at the cross. He has now enabled us to partake of his divine nature. God's nature is inviolable. Sorry to use a big word. I'll explain it for you. That means it cannot change. It cannot alter. So when God reveals his nature, it will never change. And I know I've said everything I'm saying in this message, what, 20 times each? Over and over I'm saying it. For some reason, it takes quite a few repetitions for some of these things to sink in. But God's nature will not change. He is the I am. So everything that he's revealing through his word will always be. He was, is, and always will be the same. He did not turn off his hatred of sin. He still hates it with a vehemence. God's always hated sin. Remember, that's what he picked up stuck in the trash. His law will be abided by. Do you know that he will function in perfect agreement with his law all the way through eternity? He is who he is. His law is just his nature. And so therefore, he still hates sin. And guess what? He hates sin inside of us. That doesn't change when we come to the cross. He still hates sin because it's opposite of him and it hinders our life. However, he's given us a remedy for sin. He did not stop being holy and commanding us to be so as well. He did not cease from being perfectly righteous, just and a perfect and eternal punisher of sin. Isn't that a strange thought that God is an eternal punisher of sin and that didn't turn off at the cross? Sort of like, oh, I don't know that I want to be that. And so he's like, turns that off, and now it's like, well, there's a book that was written called Love Wins. And now love wins! As if it cancels out and turns off his righteousness and his holiness, his wrath and his hate of sin. No, that still belongs in the garbage can. However, what he wants to do is lift you out of the garbage can and throw out all the junk in your life back into that garbage can. You're not supposed to be with that junk. He wants to separate you from it. That's what holiness is. It's taking you out of the garbage can where he is so you can be holy as he is holy. You can be where he is. He lives in light, not in a trash can full of darkness. He did not quit opposing darkness. He did not take a break from having wrath toward all unrighteousness. But he also didn't quit being love. Isn't that amazing? He didn't quit being love. He loved us at the cross, and do you know that he still loves us? Do you know that the same love that moved the God of the universe to condescend and do that work is still active within him? He still loves with that same intentionality, that same extreme abandon. That's how he loves us. He didn't stop his rescuing grace. He didn't cease being our intercessor, our captain of salvation. He didn't quit offering humble mercy, kindness, patience, and gentleness. His commands haven't changed. His holiness hasn't altered. His righteous demands are still perfect and impossible. It's still true that if we sin, we die. But it's also true that if we believe, we live. Grace. Grace is the labor or work of God to carry out the impossible errands of the Almighty. So let's look at a few of those impossible errands. Okay, so grace is the enabling power of God to help you carry out these impossible errands. God just says it in Scripture. He says, yeah, this is how you have to live. 
Mm-hmm. You have to live this way. We're like, what? I thought I was under grace. He says, that's what you have grace for. You have grace that you may live the life that you were commissioned to live. That's what you have. You see, we are clothed in grace, and then grace fills us. So we have the power, the rescuing power of God to actually be able to live impossible lives. I know the word impossible doesn't make a lot of sense if we can do it, but it's impossible with man. To God, the word impossible is sort of ridiculous. The only reason we have the word impossible is because we're humans and we can't do those things. However, God specializes in doing things that humans can't do. You can't save yourself, I can't save myself, but guess what? He can save us. He's the God of the impossible. It was impossible for us to find salvation, but not with God. It is impossible for us to live as we ought to live, but not for God. This is what it says in Scripture. Thou shalt be perfect as I am perfect. And by the way, that's in the New Testament. Thou shalt be holy as I am holy. Uh, That's in the New Testament too. What? I can't do that. I know you can't do it. He can do it. It's called grace. You see, God didn't just leave you a helpless victim to your circumstances. But because of his love, he has intervened and supplied us with everything that would be needed so that the law or the nature of God would be kept in our life as opposed to transgressed at every turn. You actually have something from God Almighty that has always been there. It's known as grace. You know that God didn't become a God of grace in the New Testament? It's like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to try on this grace thing for size. He is, which means he's always been grace. He is grace, and he always will be grace. The problem is we were cut off from that grace. What Jesus has done because of that love that sent him into our dark world to rescue us is he has brought us back to grace so that we can now live as we ought to live. Thou shalt love as I love. Wow. When you think of how God loved and then to know that we shalt love as he loves. How about this? Thou shalt forgive as I forgive. Thou shalt be pure as I am pure. Whoa, that's impossible for man. It's impossible. Don't you know that it's God that does the saving in the first place? Now, most of us know that, oh, God can save me from hell. But did you know that God can save you from sin? God can save you from that lustful thought? God can save you from that proud, arrogant attitude? God can save you from unforgiveness? It's called grace. You need to tap into Almighty God. It's always been the same and is today and always will be. The three roles of grace. Grace is a very active thing in our life, and most of us don't even recognize that it's even at work. Grace is used for three things. To awaken us to our vast need of a Savior and to turn our eyes to the cross. You know that grace takes the law and applies it to our soul? Isn't that a funny thought? That grace converts our soul through the use of the law. Grace is working to save us with the law. Isn't that funny? It's like, hey, uh, you need to know something here. Huh? I'm a sinner. And how did you know that? By grace. You see, you are being saved by grace through faith. When you believe that he is, that he is holy, that he is righteous, and you begin to see that nature as revealed, you are hearing the word of God, and as a result, your faith is awakening. You're amazing, God, and I'm not. You're extraordinary, you're pure, you're perfect, and I'm not. And God, unless I'm like you, I have no salvation. Woe is me. What must I do? 
and it causes a conversion of soul. And then grace is used to clothe us in the just and satisfying work of the cross. So what grace does is it awakens us to our need, and then we find ourselves turning to the cross, and we believe. Well, what's, what's doing the work? Grace is at work within us. God is wooing us. He's drawing us unto himself. And he clothes us in the just and satisfying work of the cross. And then finally, grace isn't done. This is where most of us finish. It's also to infill us with the almighty, purifying, and transforming work of the Spirit. He says, you, you need more than just clothing. You need power to live this life. I've got it for you. And it's called the throne room of grace. Otherwise known as the holy of holies, by the way, which we have been cut off to. No man can rightly enter into this territory without a just and satisfying offering. You do not have that just and satisfying offering, but he does. It's called his blood. And if you are clothed in him, that means wherever he goes, you're in him. And where did he go? He went into the holy of holies in heaven. And where are you? You're in him. He has brought you near to the very place where the Father is. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the place of all dominion, all power, and all authority. And where are you? If you turned to him and believed in him, do you know that you're in him? You're clothed in him? And now you are brought into what's known as the throne room of grace. And he says, ask, ask, ask the Father. Ask the Father in my name and he will give you the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? Grace. It is the power of God to enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. You're tired of lusting? I don't blame you. You need the power of God. You need to live by grace. You're tired of violating that law? You're tired of doing the opposite of what God's nature is? I don't blame you. That's called good news. Hey, the one who came to save you 2,000 years ago is still here to save you. And he'll always be here to save you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He ever lives to stand in the gap as your high priest and help you. The God of all grace. The unchanging everness of God has been revealed. So here's our list. He was and is and is to come. He is the word of God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is love. And he is grace. He, listen to this, this is so powerful. He personally is ever laboring to keep our feet from stumbling and to present us a pure and spotless bride marked by his holiness his righteousness, his purity, and his amazing love. He says, you'll know my disciples. How? By our love. Whoa! He is constructing us in the same building blocks. He's saying, you need to know. You need to know that I am. And then you need to begin to understand the word of God. And when you understand the word of God, you're going to recognize my holiness. You're going to recognize my righteousness. And you're going to recognize that you need me. And all the more throughout our Christian life, and I don't know how many of you have found this to be true, all throughout your Christian life, what are you finding? I need him. Boy, am I a sinner. And he's a great savior. It's a funny thing, but you recognize more and more how much he means to you. How dependent you truly are upon him. I really do need to be saved. It's like an ever-increasing revelation, but you appreciate all the more his saving quality that he is love and that he saves us by his grace. This is our God. So here's our full and complete man. And where is grace taking us? It's taking us to the head. It's taking us to those lips of intimacy. 
It's taken us into that holy of holies. So he was and is and is to come. He is the word of God. He is holy. He is righteous. And then we are taken into that veil because of his love that sought us out and made a vehicle of rescue for us known as himself. And he has carried us in by his grace. He personally is ever laboring to keep our feet from stumbling and to present us a pure and spotless bride marked by his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, and his amazing love. That's our God's nature right there. What we're seeing is a revelation of who he is. And guess what? He's always been this way. And guess what? 2,000 years after the cross, he still is this way. You can take that to the bank. You believe that. He is, and he is that. It's not just that he is anything and you fill in the blank. He is, and that means he'll always be it. He'll never change. He's eternally it. And what is he? He's that. That's pretty exciting. Because he could be anything. He could, you know, be a trickster. He could be up to no good and looking for ways to trip you, stick his foot out and you like trip and, you know, plant your nose against the sidewalk and he laughs. That's not the way he is. This is the way he is. And no one can ever change him from being that way. We could mock and ridicule him. The one enthroned in heaven will hold us in derision. He is. I love this thought. The God who was grace is grace and will always be grace. You know, from the very beginning, he has been seeking a way to rescue us. From the very beginning, he says, the seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning, he had the intention of expressing his grace and his love and his mercies to us. Yes, he's holy and righteous, but he's also love and grace. Both are true. And most of us try and split it one way or the other. We get afraid of his love and grace because we don't want to allow licentiousness and easy living and fleshly living in Christianity. And we also are so afraid of having that law and that righteousness and that holiness expounded upon because that's going to make everyone a legalist. Well, I don't want either one of those extremes either. What I want is Jesus. He isn't one or the other. He's not either law or grace. He is grace, the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfection of God, made manifest to us. And as a result, we have clothing to enter into. It's called his perfect righteousness. If he wasn't righteous, we have no hope. We are clothed in his righteousness. So the two factors of faith, this goes right back to the beginning. Remember, we, we talked about, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So our two factors, the facts, he is, and the promise, he is a rewarder. Remember we talked about the legs? You could know about your legs, the facts, but you also must know the promise. You rise up on those legs, and those legs were designed by your creator to walk you from here to there. It's amazing. And the same is true with the mouth. You have a mouth, but just knowing that you have a mouth doesn't mean you're eating with it. But you need to take the good food and the, and the life-giving liquids and stick them in that mouth and swallow them. And when you do, you will have life. The same is true with Jesus Christ. Do you see him? He is. Do you see his work upon that cross? I do. Believe. Believe upon that work. And when you believe, you will live because he is a rewarder of those who turn unto him. 
He will give you that which is good when you turn to him for that good. It's not just knowing that he is out there. It's knowing that he is a rewarder. It's knowing that his nature is love and grace. It's not just knowing that he's a very impressive, almighty, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God. It's knowing that that omniscient, all-powerful, incredible creator is inclined to rescue you and has done it 2,000 years ago upon that cross. And he says, if you rise up on those legs and start walking, this torso will find balance. If you rise up and turn to that cross, you will find that you will walk. If you stick that life-giving, satisfying substance known as Jesus Christ upon your tongue and swallow, you will have life. So look at the bottom, the he is. And then look at the top, the he is a rewarder. You see, it's not just knowing his exemplary nature. It's knowing that he is a rewarder, that he wants to save, that he will save. The two factors of faith, law and grace. So here we have the same chart, and what you see on the bottom is law. The law is the schoolmaster, which leads us to Jesus, which leads us to understand why he came. He came to fulfill all righteousness and to truly become the word of God made flesh, to show us the I am. And in doing so, he has given us grace. And grace is the trump card. The word of God in text. The facts, it's the law of the old covenant that he is. And the promise, grace, the gospel. You see, you need to know that he is, but then you need to know the gospel. If all you know is the Old Testament, if all you have is the Old Covenant, then you don't have Jesus. You have everything that leads you to Jesus. Oh, I have a longing to walk. Oh, I ache to somehow move from here to there. You have an ache for a Messiah. You have an ache and a longing for a Savior. That isn't enough. You need the gospel. You need the promise of salvation. You need the cross. And that promise is grace, the gospel, the new covenant. He is a rewarder. Both are necessary. The word of God in person, we'll call him Jesus, Yeshua. The name Jesus is the blend of two amazing words. I covered this last week. It's still worth uh, remembering. It's the word Yahweh, which is the holy name of God, the unspeakable, ineffable name, Yahweh, mixed with the verb to save, which basically means I am saves, or for us, he, he saves. The God who is saves. He always has saved. He will save today, and he ever will save. He saves. God saves. You know, so what this name indicates is the top portion. It's like, don't you know that he's love and grace? Don't you know that it's not just that he is, he is, but he is the finish. He's the whole thing. That's what his name means. It's like all attributes of God, right there. He is, that's the first part, mixed with love and grace. He is the one that saves. So Christianity, number one, is clothed in his unchanging righteousness, and two, empowered by his grace to live a holy life that would otherwise be impossible. It's both and. It's the bottom and the top mixed. Passing along his unchanging everness. 
He clothes us and fills us with his unchanging everness. His throne room of grace will never close, so there is never a situation where his unchanging everness is not available to us. He makes us always people. So remember, he always is. He always will be. And then who is it that clothes us? The always one clothes us with his always presence. He just always is the same way, and he's going to make you an always person. We're always people. The most elementary attribute of God, this is how we started out, is his I amness, his eternal sameness, his forever alwaysness, his unchanging everness. What should be the most basic building block of a Christian then? God stabilizes our life. He takes us from going up and down and all over the place to suddenly, boom, he rivets us. He drills us in to his bedrock. And he begins to build us the way his nature is revealed in Scripture. And he says, no, no. No more are you a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. No longer are you a dog returning to your vomit saying, oh, I don't want that vomit anymore. I'm going to come over here. Oh, and then the vomit attracts us again. We're not tossed to and fro. Boom! We're locked in. How could you do that? Get to know the I am. Get to know the power of Jehovah, and he will stabilize your life, and he will build you as rock. The always people, Christians, what should be said of us? Well, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I recognize that I don't want to blaspheme God by making it sound like we can do what God does. At the same time, I don't want to blaspheme God by diminishing his grace. You see, he has given us everything we need to behave as we ought to behave. So as a result, we can be as he is. Though we are not as he is, by our nature and the way we are outside of him, we can be as he is when we turn unto him and he fills us with his grace. And he enables us to live lives that otherwise would be impossible. The fire shall always be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. This is a little quick study. I'm just going to read it through real quick about always. In the temple of God, there is always a fire that's supposed to be burning. Well, who's the temple of God? You are. There is always supposed to be the fire of the Holy Spirit burning. Never let it go out. You're an always person. So this is what it says in Scripture about always. And by the way, this is a study that is about 100 times bigger than what I have here. Okay, this is just the word always. But continual, perpetual, I mean, it's all over Scriptures. We set the Lord always before us, and because he is at our right hand, we shall not be moved. We ought always to pray. By the way, do you guys know what always means? It means always. Isn't that incredible? It means always. That means God himself is saying, oh yeah, you need to be an always person. You could say, well, God, you're the always God. I can't be always. He says, I am the always God who will make you an always person. That's the gospel. We ought always to pray. And without ceasing, make mention of others always in our prayers. We thank our God always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for he always causes us to triumph in Christ. Isn't that an amazing statement? For he always causes us to triumph in Christ. Boy, just that could change your life. We are always bearing about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We are always confident, and due to his abounding grace, we always have all sufficiency in all things in order to abound to every good work. We are giving thanks always for all things, and always making our requests with joy, and we are always magnifying Christ in our bodies, whether it be by life or by death. 
We are always obeying. We are rejoicing in the Lord always, praying always, and our speech is always with grace seasoned with salt. We are always laboring fervently for others in prayer and giving thanks to God always for others. We always follow that which is good and we always, and we rejoice always. We are bound to thank God always for our brothers and sisters in Christ and we pray always, making mention of others always in our prayers. Okay, you guys getting the understanding that always is a part of our commission? It's not just the way God is. He is, which means he will always be the same. And then what does God say to us? Now you need to be always too. Huh? And I'll help you do it. Remember, he is the one that enables us to be as he is. And he is always. Jesus, the always savior, the only one who is always. We're very inconsistent in our own strength, but he isn't. When we turn our lives over to him, he will be our always savior. And he that sent me is with me, says Jesus. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus is the always Savior. What did he do? He was expressing that love and grace to us, and he did it with always precision. And this is one of my favorite scriptures. Wherefore, he, Jesus, is able also to save them, we could say us, to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Seeing he... It says in the King James, ever, but the word means always. Same word. Seeing he always lives to make intercession for them. So who's the I am? Mm -hmm. Jesus. And guess what? He's proving his I amness, his unchanging everness. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago and saved us. And he says, and by the way, I didn't clock out. You know that the God who came to this earth to save us is still on active duty? And he's saying, you need help? My full-time job is Yahweh saves. My full-time job is to reveal to you Yahweh saves. <laughs> wow! Oh, that is amazing! What's that? <laughs> There's our little drawing, because I know some of you have been, the, your favorite part of this has been my drawings. Still the gold arms on the outside. You know what that is? It's a very poor rendition of it, but that's a rainbow. You know what God's signature is? If God was going to put his signature on something, you know what he signs it with? A rainbow. That's his sign of covenant. Why? Well, it's the attributes of God that never change. You know that a rainbow way back in the days of Noah is the same rainbow as we have today? Same colors. Roy G. Biv. I don't know if they had a little statement for it like that back then. But red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Roy G. Biv. Same always. I'm just going to read it. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spoke. God is shrouded. He's surrounded with a rainbow. This, I know he looks a lot better than that. But he has an unchanging symbol of covenant around him. I am who I am. I will never change being who I am. And that symbol is a rainbow. 
And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. This is Jesus. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. God sticks a rainbow in the sky. and He says, this is the hallmark of my covenant with you as men. Why does God even condescend to covenant with us? And yet what he uses is a signature, his own signature of his nature. And he says, and I will never violate it. When God promises, he cannot lie. And what's always about him? His signal of promise. He's enveloped in his symbol of covenant. He reasons through his symbol of covenant. He is, and he always will be our savior. We're in a pretty good place when we believe in Jesus Christ. Let me just put it that way. Because not only are we in Jesus, but then Jesus is surrounded by his symbol of covenant. He is clothed in a rainbow. His nature can never be violated. We can say, God, you are holy. He says, yes, I am, and I will always be holy. God, you are righteous. Yes, I am, and I will always be righteous. God, you are love. Yes, I am, and I will always be love. God, you are grace. Yes, I am. And I can never stop being grace. God will still be violent towards sin, but he will always be a shepherd, a father, and a bridegroom towards righteousness. Anything that is born of his nature, he is lifting us out of a trash can, throwing off the filth, condemning that filth, and he's setting us apart to be his own, to be his treasure. He doesn't want us in a trash can. He wants us seated in heavenly places in Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.